Welcome to the WCAPS 5 podcast series. WCAPS is an online community dedicated to strengthening the leadership and professional development of women of color, specializing in the fields of peace, security, conflict transformation, and foreign policy. Join us as we unpack their valuable perspectives, learn from their strategies, and grow together. Vive. Vision. Impact. Voice. Engagement. Welcome to another WCAPS podcast, Vive series, uh, um, a podcast with another uh, amazing moon of color. And I'd like to introduce Nicolette Louis-Saint. And uh, you can tell you if I said that correctly. I love your last name, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and you can give us some of the origins of that. Um, but I have known Nicolette for quite a few years. I've had the very uh, honor of meeting her through some of the work that I did um, when I was working on the global security agenda. Um, so it's really an honor for me to have her here. And I guess I should say, of course, my name is uh, Bonnie Jenkins and I am the executive and uh, uh, director and founder of Women of Color Advanced Peace and Security. And one of the greatest aspects of doing this is meeting amazing women and hearing about what they're doing, but I can't be selfish and know all these people myself. I have to make sure that everybody knows the wonderful uh, uh, women that I'm having uh, the real opportunity to meet and work with. Uh, I should also say Nicolette is uh, one of the advisors on the advisory council for WCAPS. So it's really, um, it's, I'm very, it's very happy when uh, she agreed to do this back when we were established uh, almost two years now. It'll be two years, September 22nd uh, uh, now, uh, this year, it'll be two years since we've been in existence. Um, so what I'd like to do is ask Nicola to introduce herself, and we will go through some um, questions that uh, will allow Nicolette to talk about her background and how she got into the field she's doing and, um, you know, what they're interested in it and maybe some of your journey, Nicolette, and, uh, and, and also some of the challenges um, and unique perspectives that uh, you think Nicolette uh, bring you bring to this um, this this discussion? So, um, uh, am I coming clear with you, Nicolette? You are. Good afternoon. Great. Can you okay, because uh, my my I was looking that it wasn't coming through. Yes, I can hear you perfectly. Okay. okay so perfect. great. So uh, yes, Nicolette, who you are and and what you do. Sure. Um, I currently serve as the Executive Director of Healthcare Ready. Um, Healthcare Ready is a nonprofit organization that was actually started to serve as a public-private partnership around the issues of health preparedness and response, um, looking at the needs of patients during disasters. So um, really looking beyond just um, pandemics, but inclusive of pandemics, understanding what the needs are that um, could be faced and how to use partnerships that exist between public and private um, to be able to meet those needs. So um, that, is, that is what I do. That's what the organization focuses on. Um, it's a pretty large mandate, um, so it so keeps things pretty interesting. <laughs> Great. And how did you get into the field of health? What, what got you interested in that? Yeah, I was always interested um, 
and some aspect of of science and the application of science, which I think is how I kind of stumbled, if you will, into health. Um, it's been probably <laughs> it's probably been um, twenty plus years of of me kind of stumbling around um, health or health related fields. So um, where I originally started was actually in engineering and wanting to pursue chemical engineering, um, mainly from the, from the perspective of thinking about how um, fluids and um, things just move, right? And, and understanding um, the field of rheology, specifically the study of fluids, um, which kind of got me into thinking about the biological applications of rheology because you know, thinking about the movement of blood and water um, in the in the human body, it's it's just another fluid, it's another system. Um, so that's really kind of how I got my my interest in the field, um, and then making the decision to pursue pharmacology is kind of an extension of that um, in my graduate studies, um, continuing to just really have an interest in thinking about. Um, Strangely for me, um, always health, very, very rarely medicine, <laughs> um, but thinking about how um, systems, how systems work and thinking about the ability to use our understanding of um, systems engineering, of chemistry, of pharmacology to improve health broadly. Um, so for, I'd say about um, the first third of my career, really having an interest in doing this in academia. Um, and while I loved some aspects of academia, I would say there are other parts of academia that didn't love me back. Um, and so um, I, I found myself looking for um, ways to kind of continue that mandate, but to expand that, that interest in the application um, of, of science and the ability to improve human condition while not necessarily looking for it in the traditional academic path. And I think that's kind of how I ended up in policy and then ultimately kind of in the nonprofit world. Well, great. And, and it's interesting you said that about academia because I'm actually going to start teaching uh, in the fall. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I wanna, I'd love to hear your, your perspectives about, uh, about academia and your work there. But sure. before we do that, um, why don't we do, uh, take a step back and, and you talked about your interest in systems and, and health. Um, tell us a little bit more about where you're from and, uh, and you know, it, you know, if the, if there was anything that you can think of, where that was something happened in when you in your childhood or growing up that made you that sparked that very interest in systems and health and things like that. I know I I think like people always ask me, for example, how'd you get? Because I've always worked for the government, and people say, what made you want to get interested in the government? I say, well, you know, I I wanted to do it as far back as I remember, and I don't remember any time when I did really want to work in the government, uh, but I think it started with me, this, the idea of public service and, um, and I think, you know, working in health is definitely like a public service thing. Mm -hmm. um, I was geared toward working in uh, a government structure, a large system structure. So sometimes you can't always pinpoint it, but you can think about something that, that created that. So maybe yeah. you can tell us about where you're from and, and where you grew up and, and if, if that res resonates with you at all. 
Sure. Um, I, I think it does to some extent. Um, I am Caribbean. Um, I am the first generation American um, child of a Haitian father and Jamaican mother. Um, family immigrated to the United States at very different times, but um, grew up in New York. Um, as a lot of people, I think, know who are familiar with New York City, um, Brooklyn is kind of one of the major hubs for um, Caribbean populations. I'd say all of New York City, but there are definitely some pockets of Brooklyn that just feel like they are still the Caribbean. Um, and so I grew up in one of those um, in a community called Midwood. Um, and for me, it was... Um, it was it was really cool um i'd say to be in such a diverse community um but i would say very much unlike the lived experiences or childhoods of some of my friends or colleagues um in terms of just what the composition of my neighborhood was even my block um the experiences of being a first generation american um which I think in some ways kind of makes you more like wherever your family is from than where you are born. Um, and, and so for me, that's a, a big part of my identity. And um, I, I guess science um, had always been an interest. I've, I've always been interested in many different things and was encouraged to, to pursue those. I think science was um, one of the things that kind of stood out for me. Um, I had a really strong liberal arts background, actually. Um, the schools and the training that I had in middle school and high school were really geared towards creating strong um, liberal arts specialists, um, people who would be experts in the humanities. Um, many, many years of Latin and Greek training, for example, um, that sort of thing. And so for me, an interest in science was more um, out of the recognition that while I got to do a, a lot of science and a lot of other things, I felt like high school was way more about um, the humanities for me um, than it was science and I had that interest and I wanted to pursue it further. Um, yeah, I think that's kind of what kind of took me down that path of, of engineering and then ultimately um, health. And, I, you know, it was, I'd say something that was probably very, very encouraged by my family, probably less encouraged by the school that I went to just because it was so unlike what they had trained us to do. Um, so that was a little bit of an adjustment in trying to identify supports that would welcome that um, was definitely something that I had to figure out and navigating um, the process of ap applying and going through identifying undergraduate op opportunities and all that was um, very much an adjustment. What, what I found in engineering was there was such a, an interest in having people of color, especially young women of color, in the, in the field in general, that there was a lot more support being offered um, than I, I think for other fields. And I think that's part of what kind of kept me in it and kept me interested um, and the, at the beginning was, was recognizing that, that those types of supports might not have been available to me had I studied something in the humanities, at least where I was looking. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that was definitely a big part of it. 
That's very, that's great. It's very interesting to hear about the support that you got um, in the engineering field. And um, do you think that's a, is that um, kind of unique to where you were and where you were studying? Or do you think that was kind of a, a general mm -hmm. feeling at that time uh, in, the, in engineering overall about bringing in diversity and bringing in women of color? Yeah, I think, um, so I went to Carnegie Mellon University for undergrad. Um, I think it was fairly unique to the university. Um, at the point where I was pursuing my undergraduate education, there had been, I'd say, a lot of buzz about um, the impact of diversity or the lack thereof on education. Um, and I remember um, people were still talking about um, Beverly Tatum's book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? Um, I don't know if you remember that book and all the waves yes. that it caused, yes. but people were, people were still <laughs> talking about that and they were talking about, you know, and it started, I think, um, Jonathan Kozel, Savage Inequalities was like back in the public eye, um, but there was a big conversation around STEM and there was a big conversation around diversity in education that I think were happening in parallel tracks. Um, but what was unique about Carnegie Mellon, and I think it's, I, I still think it's one of the, one of the most unique and, and special environments that I've ever had the opportunity to be in, um, was that it was a university that had it was exceptional in like seven different spaces, right? So for the people who are in the engineering space, they know CMU as an engineering school, but people who are in the arts know it as a conservatory and don't even realize that there's an engineering school or a computer science school. Um, but when I started um, at CMU, it was the second year where white people were not in the majority at the school. Wow. Yeah. And so that was a big deal. Right. And yeah. Yeah. And and part of I think what was prompted in the discussion around what the racial composition of the school was, was are we looking holistically at what the racial composition should be and how are we making it easier for people to stay here and not just to get here. So, um, and, I, and I know that they never used the term inclusion, but they were talking about the idea of diversity and inclusion at that point um, before it was kind of an education-wide focus. And so when mm -hmm. there was a focus on um, thinking about how to actually do inclusion there, um, many, many, um, I'd say probably three decades before I got there, um, there was a woman that I was fortunate enough to count as a mentor who established a, a program that was focused on supporting spe specifically black students, but um, the mandate later expanded to students of color who were at Carnegie Mellon. Um, and it was intended to help with both matriculation and, and attrition by helping them to have not just the advising support, but the community that they would have needed to feel welcome, to understand how to navigate the space, how to get that additional type of advising and support. And it was called CMAP. It was the Carnegie Mellon Action Project. Um, the name has since changed. But um, what Dr. Hill was able to do with that space was to really carve out a portion of the university that was solely focused on how students of color 
were supported at the university across all of these various disciplines. And I think what the engineering school was able to do was recognize that across the university, the representation of especially women of color, um, but, but generally, um, like I, I wanna say the chemical engineering program had one black woman <laughs> in every class <laughs> up until mm-hmm. mine and, and my class had two. And so they realized that this was a problem and they, they were trying to do something different. So I don't think it was across the field. And I think a lot of people probably thought that the, the university and the college were, were probably crazy for the amount of, of work and investment that they put into this idea. Um, but I do think it's paid off for not just the number of students that have graduated, but how well they've been able to stay in and pursue their, their, their interest as a result of the support that they got there. So mm-hmm. I think it's very unusual. And, the, and support is such an important part of it. You know, it's, it's in order to create, an, uh, as you said, not just the diversity, but the inclusion, which is what makes people want to stay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, it's, it's, a lot of it is a support. Um, so what did you do after you graduated from Carnegie Mellon? Um, I went on to graduate school. So I was one of those people who kind of recognized that even a bachelor's in engineering kind of requires additional training to be able to fully utilize it. And um, with that, I decided to pursue um, graduate studies at Johns Hopkins and um, went on to focus on pharmacology and molecular sciences. So um that was kind of my path staying, I guess, deeper into STEM. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but that was, I, I'd say probably the point of differentiation where I could have made a decision to do a bit more um, pure engineering um, that, and, you know, people with chemical engineering degrees, they are, they're doing food engineering. They're doing, you know, some sort of like manufacturing or industrial style, you know, paint production, um, you know, supply chain type issues. Um, I decided to apply it more in the health space. Um, and so that's how I ended up pursuing graduate studies in pharmacology. And then where'd you go after that? I'm, one, I'm trying to lead up to uh, how you got to be <laughs> in your lofty position now as uh you know at at healthcare ready yeah so i guess um the the quicker version of this is um i did that and i stayed in academia for a little while i did some postdocs and um kind of enjoyed the the experience of being in academia but kind of going back to inclusion and support um mm-hmm. just did not did not feel that um in some ways kind of felt felt the opposite. I think there were a lot of instances where people frankly just didn't know what to do with me. Um, and it wasn't clear at, at the point where I decided to leave academia, it wasn't clear to me that I could have had a successful career without um, feeling severe impacts to just my overall well-being um, or sense of self or, um, esteem in some way um and and it felt like that's why you said that academia didn't love you back yeah yeah okay it i think there was (laughs) the thing about academia at least in in the experience i had there was a um i realize this is going to be 
on a recording, I think there was a, an interest in having diversity. I don't mm-hmm. think they were prepared for diversity that looked like me. So mm-hmm. there were, mm-hmm. um, there were just insufficient supports, I think. And, and just, um, issues of bias that were tremendous issues of bias that were just never addressed. And I, I think for me, it was enough that I, I found myself needing to explore a different way to use my skills and, and take my interests to benefit society. Um, I think there are other people who just kind of walked away from science and never really looked back. Um, so when but- you said, just, just interrupt for a quick second, because I don't want to mm-hmm. lose track of this, the point you made just now, when you said that um, they were ready for the, they were ready for diversity, but they, you know, they were ready for diversity. Um, I think there was, there was excitement about seeing women. Um, there was excitement about kind of broadly people of color. Um, but I think black women, um, there were still a lot of biases specifically about black women Mm -hmm. and the way that our interests and passions and perspectives show up, um, that were not welcomed. Um, I, I just don't think people were prepared for that. And within academia, the way that power structures are set up, it's unlike any other environment you'll ever encounter because it's not, you can go to an HR department, but especially as a postdoc, there really isn't an HR for you. Um, there really isn't a chain of command outside of your principal investigator. So if you're having issues that are not being resolved in that channel, you're just left to fend for yourself. Mm-hmm. Okay. So right. that took me in a path to policy. Um, I did a fellowship and ended up at the State Department for a while, um, ultimately at some point working on the Ebola response um, as a senior advisor to first Ambassador Nancy Powell and then Ambassador Steve Browning, who were leading the State Department response to the 2014 Ebola outbreak. Um, And then after that, stayed around state for a little while um, and then left the administration, the previous administration, um, to work at Healthcare Ready. So I started at Healthcare Ready as the um, director of programs um, and then became the ED about two years ago. Great. And are there many women of color do you run across a lot of women of color in your at your level in your field? What you're doing? Um, I, I I mean I think the answer is um, <laughs> the answer is no. I would I would caveat a little bit to say I think my field now is kind of a few fields, um, and I think in the public health and the global health space there are more women and more women of color. Mm-hmm. than in most other STEM or STEM-related fields. However, um, in the emergency management space, which I kind of, I, I kind of straddle the two worlds, um, that is a space that is notoriously starved for diversity. Um, and there are some efforts now um, that, are, that are looking to do more about that. Um, but then I think the other kind of third space that I, that I sit in, and, and Bonnie, you're here as well, um, is in the nonprofit executive space and and looking for opportunities to connect with other nonprofit leaders because it is a really unique 
experience, <laughs> I would say, be, you know, running a nonprofit organization. Um, and I, I don't think there are a lot of people of color in that space, again, slowly growing across all disciplines. Um, but I think nonprofit organizations focused on health or, you know, security, supply chain, no. Right. So why, it, having said that, I mean, in, in your perspective, why do you think it's important that the voices of women of color are a part of what you do and emergency management? Um, why is it important that we are there, that we are in positions like yours uh, to be leaders, but also just to be in those fields at all? <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it's it's just about representation. I think when you're thinking about fields like emergency management, um, emergency management is solely intended to pr help protect communities and help communities recover from disasters, right? Things that, that would be considered catastrophic and upheave the ability to it allows society to resist. Society doesn't exist as a monolith, especially American society. So having emergency management as, you know, one example, it's, it's a portion of our national security of just how we protect communities um, exists as a monolith. I think does us a disservice to understanding how those communities function, what their priorities are, all of those things about um, how we better serve those communities. And, and what would be, you know, as a as a role model to to other you know, young um, young black women, young women of color? Um, what is it that um, how do how do you go about trying to increase the numbers of women in the field, uh, the pipeline? So I think. Um, you know, I think there's recruitment and then there's retention. I don't know that, um, I think recruitment is important in kind of increasing the pipeline. But I also think, you know, the, in some ways the pipeline kind of exists so that when we're done, <laughs> um, there are people who are prepared to take over. Part of what I'm also interested mm -hmm. in is thinking about the people who have the ability to currently sit in the seat and just need the opportunity to do so. Um, and I think both of those things can exist at the same time, but I think there are, um, you know, one, one of them I think is a longer path and an important path, but I think there's another piece of it, which is just how we're thinking about making sure that the people who do have the capabilities, do have the training, aren't leaving the field, and when there are opportunities for them to, to serve in positions of leadership, that they're given that opportunity and not passed over it. Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's, it's, it's a lot of it is so much about retention and um, in many different aspects, not just the support system, but the opportunities themselves. And if people don't see them, mm -hmm. um, then they're gonna go and do something else, and then you're just increasingly losing, you know, the really good talent that's out there. Mm -hmm. um, so we really have to focus on that as well. Um, so, um, so more specifically, just kind of um, delving a little bit more into this uh, uh, concept of the next generation. Um, what would be 
based on your your trajectory and how you how you went from where you were to where you are now and what would you if i if i had two young women in front of you who are about 17 and they said wow i really think what you're doing is amazing and i want to do the same thing tell me what uh, tell me how do i how do i become you how do i do what you did how do i get to that spot that place what was unless you had about some advice that you would give them what would that be yeah, I get this question, I'd say a couple of times a year, and it always makes me a little uncomfortable because I, I don't know that the mm-hmm. world needs more me's um, so much. <laughs> you know, I, I just think, you know, this idea of like, how do I do it the way you did is, is probably the wrong frame. And I think there's a way to, um, like, I've had fantastic mentors that I've been able to look up to and in some ways emulate, but I love the fact that they never wanted to make me a version of them. Their thing was, how do we make you the best version of you? And I think some of that is not putting limits on yourself too soon. Like, I am certain that I cannot do what Serena Williams does on the tennis court, Um so I'm not going to try, <laughs> you know, I, and I think that's a big part of it is um, how do you give yourself, you know, the ability and the freedom to have a range of experiences and a range of opportunities that allow you to figure out kind of what your, you know, where your Serena Williams like superpower is, and then go into that. And I, I think for me, um, you know, while, I can look back at it now and present it as a straight path. It certainly didn't feel that way. And it certainly wasn't. Um, And I think it's, it's definitely made me better as a professional and just as a human to be able to have had those range of experiences um, and, and maybe take a detour here and there that I didn't really plan for, but have, have so far, I'd say worked out in my favor. And I think that's a big part of it. Um, I am really against the idea of forcing, um, forcing young people, um, forcing, you know, junior mid-level professionals to feel like they have to hone in and specialize too soon. I think there is absolutely something to having a skill set, knowing what you want to do and being excellent in it. But I, I think it's even more important to be competent across a range of capabilities. And, and if you have a range of interests, finding ways to balance your, your interests in those things, and then giving yourself enough space and sometimes grace to understand that you may change course and changing course doesn't mean you're failing. It means that you're pivoting a little bit and the experiences that you previously had will probably help you in your future path as well. And that's exactly the kind of experience that I was hoping you'd you done. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think it's a ha- it's important to have those kind of broad brush things. That for me, a lot of it is um, nothing. A lot of times, because you never know what a person's going to experience in life, so it's more right. the broad brush kind of you know thoughts to to give them to keep in mind as they mature and yeah. have their own experiences. And, um, and, and on that, I mean, flipping it around, I mean, uh, not just opportunities, but what have been, you know, what would you say have been um, some, some of the challenges or say like right now in your job now, I mean, do you feel, 
are there any, any challenges that, that you are, you experience and you're, you're, and obviously you're overcoming them, whatever challenges are out there. And to me, that's the most important thing about life is how you overcome challenges. Mm-hmm. But what are some of the more challenges that you can talk about that you've experienced as you, as you've transferred from one job to the next or, you know, achieve some of the things you've achieved? Sure. Um, I think there's a list. There's a, <laughs> there's a whole list and they probably change probably, you know, depending on the week, depending on the, the month, um, depending on the year. Um, and I don't think there will ever be a shortage of challenges um, unless I, unless I'm staying stagnant. Right. Um, so I, I think for one, um, you know, running an organization of any kind, running an organization is is hard um it is very much an adjustment to um not just be in content and subject matter you know being perceived as an expert and i think one of the things about being trained in stem fields is that you are not trained to be a personality and a brand and all of that you're trained to know things and to know how to do things and to know how to solve problems um and I still think my engineering skill set just, it taught me how to think and it taught me how to solve problems. Mm-hmm. But I think running an organization is a different type of problem. And the other part of it that um, I don't think training like mine prepares you for is how, how what you do in your profession spills over into your personal life. Like the idea of, you being a part of the organization, like you being the face of something, what that really means and what that implies and um, how in some ways that is expanding and other ways it's limiting and how to balance and adjust with that. Um, That's a challenge for me. Um, I am notoriously introverted and really crave privacy in my, in my own time and all of that stuff that is just hard to have when you, you know, when you're running something. Um, I think another thing in the space is just, you know, what is, what does it look like to sit in spaces that probably traditionally don't really welcome you or don't really know what to do with you? Um, how, you know, how to adjust for that, how to make yourself comfortable in places that really weren't built for you. Um, I think that's, that's one. Um, and then I, I think the, the reality for a lot of us that are, I think, in any spectrum of the policy space right now is just that the world is changing very quickly. And it is a balance to stay up on subject matter read all the things you want to read, absorb all the information that you need to absorb and do the day-to-day things that you have to do just in the interest of, of not just leading, but managing, right? And, and how do you manage the process, manage the people, support the teams, do all those things to just keep the lights on and keep the, you know, the, the things churning and make sure that you're absorbing all of this information because things are changing constantly um in in this very complex world and that's something that i think we all struggle with in different ways yeah and those those are really um really great points and and i guess you know as we uh, get toward the end of the, the the interview one thing i really want to ask a 
is I, I try to think of the questions that I get and the mm-hmm. questions that you get so that people who are listening to the podcast have an opportunity to ask questions might might be interested in. And one of those is the imposter syndrome. Mm. Um, and it's something that, um, it, it, you know, in a brief survey that we did at WCAPS that came up as, you know, a lot in terms of things that women of color deal with. Um, and I think everyone deals with it to some degree. Mm-hmm. I had a white man say that he dealt with imposter syndrome, um, which I didn't really? realize. <laughs> interesting. You know, you think of the culture not having as much. It was interesting. Um, but I know that women of color very often um, have this issue. And so I'm just, I wonder if we could just, you know, as we close out, if you could say a little bit about that, because that's a question or people always want to get advice about how do you deal with that? So how, how have you dealt with that? Um, I, I don't know that I have a great answer for this because I think um, I, like many of my colleagues are dealing with it, not necessarily have dealt with it. And I think there's certain, certain portions of all of our journeys that are continuous and, um, you know, hopefully we, we get better iteratively um, in how we deal with certain things and how we adjust and, learn ourselves and and all of that i think this is one of them where it it probably i don't expect it to ever go away i think there are points for me where i'm better at managing it than others um when it comes to imposter syndrome i i think it's for me it's just something that's kind of always there and frankly when you are just really busy (laughs) and trying to just get certain things done you have to decide what what fears, what constraints, what portions of your capacity you're going to lend to certain things. And there are certain times where, you know, I remember reading this thing where um, it was a meme and, and basically the point was the woman was like, I'm, you know, in the middle of all these things and I'm feeling all this fear and I had to stop and say to myself, cut it out, we don't have time for this. But I think that's very much how I deal with imposter syndrome on most days is just, it doesn't matter how I feel about it. I have to get this done. And if I have to get this done, mm-hmm. and if me, you know, getting this thing done cannot be done by somebody else, I have to move past my feelings right now and get it done. Um, and I'm not saying that that's the best way yeah. to deal with it, but I think so much of imposter syndrome is a perspective that it's a perspective that's rooted in lack. And it's this idea that, you know, we almost assume that we know what other people are capable of and use that as a reflection of what we lack. And I don't know that either one of those are true. I don't think that we, we necessarily know what other people are capable of. We know what we perceive. Um, and I don't think that we always know what we lack because oftentimes we surprise ourselves by how capable we actually are. So... For me, it's more of, you know, I, I would love to have these feelings right now, but I cannot. <laughs> and so I have to put them over here. And at some other point, I will deal with them. Um, and for me, on a day-to-day basis, that is really how I, how I deal with imposter syndrome. Um, and I think sometimes in leadership, it's a little bit easier to do that because you're like, I... I'm already kind of at the place in the position 
to say, okay, I want to be able to affect this change. I think it's harder when you're trying to get into that position where you feel like now I'm in a seat where I can affect change to not give into your imposter syndrome. So I think at those points, how I managed it was probably different where I was, I have one or two people around me who are capable of kind of speaking to me about me in ways that I receive. I'm not really a huge compliments and and flowery praise type of person. Um, And I kind of get some people's nerves because they'll give me big compliments. and I'm like, okay, fine, moving on. But there are one or two people who like, they, they can say things in a way that I receive it. And I, and I do sometimes kind of lean on them. Like I'm having this moment, help me out, (laughs) just help me out here. Like remind me of what is like objectively true. Um, and so, and I still do that from time to time, but I think generally I, and and this is very much, I think the engineer in me coming out, um, I look at it as this is a feeling that could be based on reason or it could be based on fear and a rational thought. And either way it's legitimate because it's a feeling, but that feeling does not change the fact that I have to do X y and z and Mm -hmm. i might not feel that way after i get these things done i might still feel that way but these things have to be done so i need to focus my energy on them yeah that's a perfect answer and i I totally agree because that's exactly how i deal with it (laughs) (laughs) you know i do how i deal with it i don't have time to deal with it right 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 (laughs) (laughs) too much to do to worry about this (laughs) exactly Exactly. And that's the thing about it is leadership takes a lot of energy. I don't think people realize so much energy. And so you find yourself just like, I don't have the energy to focus on anything that's not going to get something off the to-do list or move me a little bit further. (laughs) It's so funny because, and then I tell, I tell uh, uh, a lot of young people that after a while you, you you start to get used to it where Mm -hmm. You know, you know, so that even if it's not a situation where you're not extremely busy, you know how to push it aside. Yes. Because you just have to, you, you start to learn to not focus on it because that's all it is. It's a, it's a to me, it's something that's, as you said, it, it sucks something out of you. Exactly. And it's like, okay, I can, I can either spend my time, as you said, I can spend my time or when I have to present or when I have to do something. It's like, okay, I can spend my time worrying about this or I can get myself ready. Or I can, and, exactly. that, and, and it's, it's, it's an energy thing that takes away, and that's why I told people, um, whatever you're feeling is not something that's coming from you initially. You're feeling a fear because of what you think somebody else is thinking of you, mm-hmm. um, but that's, that's in a sense, that's their issue. I always say, it, push it back on them. You yeah. know, if you're not created, if it's not something that you've created and you're feeling because you're feeling, you feel what they're creating and pushing on you, then you push it back and you do what you got to do. You and know, I think that's it's, it's that quote that um, I think it's Eleanor Roosevelt. Like, what people think about you is none of your business. I live by mm-hmm. that. Like I and and positive and negative. Like I just don't care. And it's mm-hmm. not that I have somehow like built some type of like fence where I'm not like hurt by you know hurtful things or whatever. That's not it. I just don't have time, right? Like, I can't <laughs> indulge myself in how you feel about w- what I'm wearing or the fact that I'm sitting here or the fact that I'm black or what I just said. I can't because that is time 
that I need to spend doing other mm -hmm. things if I want the organization to move forward or if I want us quite simply to be able to fulfill our mission and protect patients in crisis, I can't focus on that and focus on your feelings about me. Exactly. <laughs> which one's gonna, <laughs> guess which one's gonna win. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Wow, we could do. I, I'm just saying we could probably do a whole thing on, on imposter syndrome, yeah, uh, which I think would be quite interesting. Anyway, uh, thank you so much, Nicola. It's always a pleasure uh, talking with you, Nicola. Um, even um, in a podcast situation, <laughs> for lunch or over drinks, it doesn't matter what it is. It's just great. So, thanks for taking the time to do this. Uh, do this podcast. Um, and uh, as always, it's, it's a great conversation. So I just want to end. Do you have any uh, last last minute thoughts for for any young women who might be listening to this? If you don't, that's fine. I, just, I always want to give uh, folks a last minute if there's something that they didn't say that they thought would be important to impart to other other women of color. Sure. I I think I I I know I've made this point, but I want to make it again, a little bit more clearly. Um, the idea that there is a certain path and that there is a, an anointed, approved um, you know, way to enter certain fields or be successful or be the right type of professional, I, I think it's garbage. And I, I think we do ourselves and we do young women a disservice by continuing to, to not debunk this idea every chance we get. And so I, if nothing else, um, I just want to make sure that we do say that really explicitly, like we've taken a range of different experiences and have in some ways, you know, walked with intention into our fields and other ways stumbled into what we found to be the right thing for us at this point. Um, and so I just want to say that again, because I think it's such an important part of fulfilling your purpose is just being open to what, you know, God or the universe, whatever you call it, um, entropy has for you because it's so important that all of those experiences really do come together. And I think that's what I've seen. And I know that that's, you know, you share this as well. Um, but it's such an important part of just being able to fulfill your own purpose is being open to the path while it may be not traditional, um, it may be exactly where you need to be at that time. Great. Thank you, Nicola, for those wise words. Um, and uh, so I just wanted just to mention to the folks listening, uh, thanks for listening to the podcast. I think you, I know you enjoyed it. Um, and so we will continue to have these amazing uh, women uh, who, who take the time to really give their thoughts uh, on a range of issues uh, on the work that they do in the area of peace and security and um, how they got to the, how they got into these fields and some of the opportunities and challenges and how they dealt with them. So thanks again for listening. Thank you for tuning in. To keep up to date with all things WCAPS, visit us at WCAPS.org or join us at an event in a city near you. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at WCAPSNet. Until next time, speak up, speak out, get engaged.